Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. This is David Kay. And uh, I don't know, it's been a while, but where is my rubber ducky? You're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and Comic-Con. Where we take you behind the scenes from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, co-host, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. And you can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, how are you? Oh, wow, man. I am sweltering. Uh, It is in the hundreds here in Middle Tennessee in Nashville. And the allergies are in full effect. So I've been absolutely, I was like Le Miserable the entire time. Uh, just horrible. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah. now, is that 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees humili- humidity or both? Both. both. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, 100, 100, deg- 100 degrees humidity. Humidi- I can't even say what you said. <laughs> but yeah, it was a, yeah, it's a hot one. And, you know, the air pressure in the house changed. And so my office that I record in, the attic door popped open. And so we leave yesterday. We, we were heading down, uh, the, my neighborhood police department was, uh, and the fire department was doing kind of a fundraiser, um, for, for local community stuff. So we went over there to get some, um, some lemonade. And by the time we came back, it was so hot upstairs because my office door popped open, uh, um, and letting the the humidity and the the hot air in, I was I was scorched, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. And we were hot out there. The kids literally lasted a minute outside, wow, having lemonade and 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 uh, popsicles that they had there. And it was like, we got to get out of here. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the one thing I have to say about the heat here in Los Angeles, it's generally dry heat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we do occasionally get some humid days, but for the most part, it's dry heat. And that's what makes it a little bit more bearable because I grew up in New York, so I know what those humid, hot days are like. They're miserable. Oh, the trash days in New York in the city are just just horrible. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely terrible. But anyway, we are glad 
you decided to join us today because we have an amazing Comic-Con Tastic, almost an Astic. That was horrible. Uh, show today. Uh, but even more than that, we have one of our friends joining us back on the show, Dave. Yeah, we do. We have, we've got producer director Rob Minkoff. Uh, he's he's been a past guest. He's back with us again uh, to talk about his latest movie, Pause of Fury. Yeah. Uh, and we're looking forward to talking with him. It's always great having him on the show and chatting about the movie. And um, we've got so much to cover. Absolutely. Let's get straight into it then. Oh, wait, actually, before we do that, what have you been streaming this week, Dave? Well, you know something? Uh, this was a little bit of a lighter week for me. I finished watching Tin Star, the se- uh, season three, yes. and I think the last season. Uh, and I also watched season two of Succession. Uh, but I also watched a movie. I didn't go to the movies like I normally do, uh, but I did uh, uh, watch The Gray Man um, with uh, Gosling. That's, my, that's uh, on my list. Did you like it? Uh, you know something? I really liked it a lot. Awesome. You know, it had it had a it had a flair of uh, you know, like the Bourne movies. You uh, know, really spectacular. Um, you know, chase scenes and gunfights and things like that. So, gotcha. uh, uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. It took place in a lot of different locations. It's the Russo brothers, yep. uh, who directed the film, uh, and I. Like I said, I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, if you like the Bourne type movies or Bond type movies, you'll probably like this. Nice. Well, I, I definitely like it. That's on my list, so I can't wait to see it. What, and what about you? You had a chance to go see Pause of Fury. I saw Pause of Fury. You know, and I mean, what's the what's the verdict? I think it was a great family movie. You know, I I feel I, I feel like uh, you know you sit down, you watch it, and and it actually was very fun. And I like the animation a lot. The voice actors were fun. And I, I think you, as an adult, I, I saw the Blazing Saddles references in yeah. there, but it wasn't too um, over the top or something where, you know, uh, where the the general audience would be like, oh, that's maybe a little pushing it because let's face it, this Blazing Saddles is amazing film for adults. It was a trailblazing movie when it was made. Well, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, but looking at this, I was like, it was, they treated it great. They didn't talk down at all, um, but it was just a a good family movie. And uh, I really appreciated it. And uh, I, I, like I said, the family was entertained. I looked at the kids and they were like, I like it. I want to see. And and then uh, my daughter said, I want to see it again. I was like, Oh, that's well, that's a, that's actually a really good bellwether, you know, when, yeah. when kids want to see the movie a second time or a third time, that's really good. Uh, yeah. I actually was going to try and go see it and uh, I just didn't have a chance uh, uh, with everything that was going on this week, uh, but I'm going to try and go out this coming week and see it. Oh yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure if they, if they wanted to do a series, you know, just like a 30 minute, you know, kind of animation mm-hmm. series on Netflix for it, I think. I think they'd be cool with it because the characters are fun. Yeah. And uh, so that was great. And then I also saw some other stuff. So uh, I saw black phone with Ethan Hawke. Oh, how was that, man? It was great. And um, scary movie, scary movie. It was a directed screenplay by Scott Derrickson, who did Dr. Strange one. 
And Robert Cargill did the screenplay. Joe Hill uh, wrote it as well. And it stars Ethan Hawke as the grabber. So this is kind of an 80s period piece um, about child abduction. And the child that gets abducted is actually part of a string of, of abductions that happen in this town. Uh, these teenagers. And uh, it has a supernatural element to it. So it is very... There's kind of like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of vibe to it along with like a Stephen King vibe because it's a period 80s thing. Uh, And Ethan Hawke is scary. Wow. He's just really scary. So good, good on that. Uh, Let's see what else. And and by the way, just to follow on that, you know, Ethan Hawke uh, directed uh, The Last Movie Stars. Oh, is that right? Uh, The the Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward uh, docuseries that just dropped. Uh, yeah. which we're looking forward to watching. This is a year for Ethan Hawke because, you know, he yeah. was in Moon Knight and he did a yeah. phenomenal job, his movie Black Phone, and then your directorial uh, thing that you were talking about there with his films. Man, that's great for Ethan Hawke, a little bit of a, a resurgence, but he's actually never really left. I mean, he, he's so so good. And but he, he does more, I mean, he does a lot of art house films. Good for him. You know, you know, yeah, uh, yeah he's great. I also saw House on the Bayou, another uh, kind of thriller uh, kind of movie. It is what you would expect. Uh, troubled couple goes to an isolated house in Louisiana and then has some unexpected visitors. It's kind of got like a, you know, a kind of home invasion kind of vibe to it. Mm. Um, so if you're into that kind of mystery, um, horror thriller, uh, this movie's for you. It's a Blumhouse film, so I've never been let down by a Blumhouse film. Uh, so there you go on that end. Another thing we are also watching is, you'll never believe this, Dave. You'll never believe it. I'm getting Kristen to watch Stranger Things. Awesome. Yeah. So Hey, you know what? I, I have to catch up on uh, Stranger Things because the second half of, this, of the last season has dropped. Yep. And I haven't gotten a chance to get to it, but I'm going to. I've really enjoyed the series. Yeah, so uh, I I am doing a rewatch because I did watch the first two seasons of Stranger Things, and then and she's like, let's just watch Stranger Things. Let's get it out of the way. Let's see what you're. Let's see what what everyone's talking about. Is and she enjoying it? She is loving it. Like we're, oh, we're halfway through the first season and she's like, oh, th- what is happening here? Is this what's happening? I said, you're just going to have to wait. I'm not going to say anything. I already know. <laughs> and then, and there's a lot of different things. Like even I just missed because it's been so long since I've seen the first season. So it's nice to do a rewatch. So that that's what's going on in my world. Of course, uh, still watching the Orville, still loving it. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about that here in the upcoming news section. Yeah, and we've got a lot because it was Comic-Con weekend. We do have a lot, so let's just go ahead and get into it. Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. It is the geek mecca that happens every year. It's Comic-Con back in full effect. This is not virtual, people. We actually had actual live human beings dressed up and attending all the different panels and every different uh, film studio, movie franchise, as you say, Dave, get out there, they strut their stuff and tell everybody what the future holds for their favorite franchises. So let's first talk a little bit about Marvel. They dropped a bomb, Dave. 
they, they dropped absolutely- a lot of bombs yesterday. I, I mean, they, they dropped it right in the middle of the Comic-Con, right? They certainly did. The Marvel Cinematic U- Universe Phase 5 slate of movies and shows. Kevin Feige took stage and told everybody what was going on and told them about what Phase 5 has in store and what Phase 6 has in store, and it is insanity. Uh, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of a, of a hint uh, of two movies slated for 2025 Avengers. What was it? Uh, Av- I had it right here and then I'm just totally missing it here. Uh, it is Avengers King. Um, oh, you see, I had it right here. Come on, give it to me here. See, this is this is why people tune in. Here it is. Avengers King Dynasty will be released May 2nd, 2025, and Avengers Secret Wars, November 7th, 2025. Can you imagine how much money the studio is going to be bringing in in 2025? It's craziness. And, and so uh, th- this Phase 5 and Phase 6, does this go out to 2025 or go out beyond 2025? That's it, 2025 right now. Okay, got it. So they the announcements they've made are through 2025. Yeah, absolutely. So they're talking about what wraps up, you know, what's wrapping up uh, this year. You've got Armor Wars. It's coming out on Disney+. Plus. You also have got, um, oh, what else is, uh, you've got uh, Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, which the trailer dropped. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is something else. And then they talk a lot about the upcoming slate, including Guardians of Galaxy 3. They talked about the uh, Captain America, which is Sam Wilson's Captain America, and Winter Soldier doing a a movie called Captain America New World Order. Mm -hmm. Uh, They talked about the She-Hulk. They talked about Daredevil coming back in an 18-part, was it 18-part series toward the end of next year? Oh, my goodness. And then Ironheart, uh, which is also happening as well. So they have a lot, a lot of films and and TV shows. They talked about the the Disney Plus series, the Secret Invasion with um, Samuel L. Jackson and the MCU teasing more X-Men and the mutants and different things like that. And so, yeah, it's a a lot of films. It's going to be nonstop entertainment. It's going to be insane. So Marvel fans celebrate, rejoice because, you know, next year we'll be here. 2025 is just right around the corner. So, you know, and I got to say, you know, with Marvel, uh, they're just firing on all cylinders. They They really really are. are. It's just absolutely amazing when you you compare them to what's happening at D.C. I mean, D.C.'s got to get their act together and really get going on, you know, building out that entire cast of uh, characters that they have in the D.C. catalog. It seems like they're going to because the new management at D.C. and the D.C. uh, franchise and the films want to double down on characters. They they I believe they're going to be doing a, a... Henry Cavill uh, coming back as Superman, which is great because I love Henry Cavill, Superman and uh, Dwayne Johnson, the rock came in to talk about, um, you know, Black his Adam. character in Black Adam. Yeah. You catch and, and by the way, that, that trailer's fantastic. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so they have a lot of things going on there, not to mention Shazam, as I mentioned, and uh, Zachary Levi is amazing. That whole cast of the funny the trailer, funny trailer. It, People it should great. catch that. Look at that trailer. It's really Zachary Levi is fantastic as Shazam. He's, it's just such, such a great character. He is. What a great actor. 
And then you also have the Sandman uh, in there as well, which is another kind of, you know, underground, I would say. He's not part of the the Fab Seven uh, super superheroes in the Justice League, but he's just kind of one of those uh, noir characters that they had from the uh, graphic novels that, uh, yeah, that people yeah. love. So, you know, they're doing a lot of really great things at DC. At least they're shaping up. And let's, let's not well, even forget Suicide Squad, you know? so Yeah, but, you know, it, honestly, it, it's taken them years and years to at least get to this place. And I don't think there is one creative genius at the top of uh, the DC franchises like there is with Marvel with Kevin Feige. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of meddling uh, from different yeah. people. And they... They, I thought when um, when their studio head, uh, um, you know, kind of took over that they would kind of write the ship, and it just seems like there's too many cooks in the kitchen, which often happens, as you know. Um, sure, you know, uh, getting films done by by corporation, by committee, <laughs> committee, by committee, yeah, right. So it is what it is, but uh, hopefully they'll write the ship, and and people will get what they want, which is great stories. Yeah. Um, Speaking of great stories, I tell you, you know, Orville continues. Uh, we have, what, three three more episodes of the Orville. Uh, great science fiction. It's definitely turned a quarter in terms of its storytelling, as I mentioned last week, Dave. So uh, if you watch this season, starting this season, it's going to give you more of a serious vibe than the kind of uh, family guy humor that maybe you saw in the first couple episodes of, of that series. Okay. So, but... The Orville is going to debut on Disney Plus all three wow. seasons. It was announced by Seth MacFarlane here. Um, it'll be available for streaming. It'll also remain streaming on Hulu as well. Uh, fan favorite series debuted um, in Hulu in third season uh, this past June. And it says, uh, Seth says, making the show has been one of the most satisfying experiences of my career. And I'm immensely grateful for Disney to provide us the opportunity to expand our Orville community further. I can't wait for new audiences to experience the series, which I absolutely love. So this is, this is a great show. And I believe that uh, this might be the first as they kind of, you know, continue to, to support Hulu of maybe having to pull all of their, their content that they produce and put it on Disney plus. Really? You think, huh? I think so. I think wow. so because we were talking about how it's uh, you mentioned that it's D Day coming up next year for Hulu and Disney to figure out what's going on with that and Universal. Can I don't know. I that? I kind of feel like they should hold on to Hulu. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of great stuff on Hulu. Well, they might move it all. I mean, look at look at The Handmaid's Tale. I love that show. Right? Yeah, yeah. And different series like that. They might move it and it might have its own little section on Disney Plus. I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, but that that's the thing, you know, from my standpoint, I kind of feel like they should keep it separate and have more of the adult oriented stuff on Hulu. I think Disney Plus, they have to be very careful about the Disney brand yep. and not tainting the Disney brand. If you put too much adult content onto Disney Plus, you you are going to you're going to tarnish the Disney name. What do you think about uh, the Marvel franchises and pushing the boundaries into rated R content? Um does that is that suitable yeah but you know something on on disney plus that's a you know it's a it's a section it's, gated you know yeah. you you go to disney plus you've got you know you've got disney you got marvel you got pixar you've got you know nat geo you've got star wars you know what i mean so you know that that to me i i i don't necessarily have a problem with but um you know when you start piling in uh, all kinds of other stuff, 
that you're going to just put onto onto Disney Plus. I don't know. I I just think that they have this, you know, incredible worldwide brand that you don't want to tarnish. Yeah. You know, the the Disney name stands for something. Yeah. And if you start to dilute that and put too much adult content on there, I think it hurts it overall. Well, I tell you, that's just my feeling. Well, I, I'm know? paying for both and yeah. I absolutely love all the stuff. That's, yeah. And that's, that's why I have, bo- you know, I have the bundle and I'm perfectly fine going to Hulu as the standalone yes. and watching all of that type of content there. You know, yeah, when yeah. I go to Disney plus, I expect to see more family fair, yeah. you know, that, and that's really what it boils down to. And, you know, they're, they're going to have to look at that. And, you know, look, if it's just a money grab and they're just trying to jack uh, subscribers, um, you know, the ultimately those short term goals hurt them in the long run. You know, I, I so, totally see that. That's yeah. just my feeling. Well, either way, I'm buying into it because I love Hulu and I love Disney. So I'm going to buy both. Uh, Got to have it. I tell you what. Speaking of adult fare, there's nothing more adult than The Walking Dead. And The Walking Dead movie (laughs) featuring Rick Grimes and Michonne has been nixed. It looks like they're going to do a limited series. Gosh, imagine that, Dave. Really? I'm I'm kind of surprised because, you know something, I think some of these long-running series deserve to have a standalone movie and do it in the way that they did um, the Downton Abbey movies where they give you a little background at the beginning by one of the stars before the movie starts. Um, I, I have to say that to me is huge. You know, I've tried to watch all of walking dead and I've gotten started and I watched like most of season one. And then, you know, it's just the type of, um, uh, uh, show genre, uh, that doesn't go over well in my household. Yeah. So I get it's, it. div- it's difficult for me to try and, you know, watch uh, that series in, in the full run. Well, that, that means you just have to come over to my house, Dave, and watch it. <laughs> um, but, but here it is, Dave. So according to sources, the decision to go limited series happened following a regime change at AMC networks with new leadership, preferring to wrap up this story on their network rather than theaters. I think it's a big miss, Dave. I think it's a I big miss. I think I, there yeah. would be throngs of people to come out to see Rick Grimes and Michonne because who we love, first of all, we love Andrew Lincoln. Andrew Lincoln yep. is an amazing actor. Michonne Denai Guerrera is just an amazing actress. And I think they both deserve the big silver screen treatment, not the small screen, but the big screen treatment. And I was looking forward to seeing this in theaters and to experience it as a community with a bunch of awesome walking dead fans. And now I won't. And, uh, I am disappointed, but I, you know, but I see it. They're yeah. trying to boost the subscriber service. And that's, and that's what it's all about. You know that as well as I do, and, you know, and, and, and an AMC is a small player. Uh, at some point they'll probably be gobbled up. Yeah. They, they probably, you will. know, I, I mean, honestly, the party's over with the streaming services, you know, the days of throwing, you know, tons of money to try and get content are over. We see that with Netflix. Netflix is pulling in the purse strings. They're focusing on quality now instead of quantity. Uh, and they're starting to watch the dollars they're spending, which is which is what all of the services are going to be doing. The next step in the streaming wars is going to be consolidation. Yep, yep. I can totally see them being gobbled up by 
Universal. <laughs> yeah, where it makes sense, right? I mean, that's where all yeah. the monsters belong in Universal. So I, yeah, I, I totally see it. They also, of course, uh, talked about the new spinoff series with Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Maggie, who plays uh, or Lauren Cohn, who plays Maggie, and Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Negan. That's scheduled to appear in 2023 on AMC and AMC Plus, which I'm stoked about as well. I love the Walking Dead universe. And then, speaking of fantasy you also have dungeons and dragons another great uh, series um the trailer shows off stars chris pine michelle rodriguez Reg jean page and sophia lillis and justice smith as a ragtag group of thieves and they appears that the group accidentally helps a red wizard come into possession of an artifact and they're trying to get it back so uh it looks very very interesting chris pine doesn't do anything wrong in my book so this should be a pretty awesome film i love dungeons and dragons cool um, i'm looking forward to seeing it you know i think chris pine is is a terrific actor well yeah love I him do in the star trek movies love, love him in star trek love him in disney movies love him in, in actually wonder woman movies as well it's great yeah uh, speaking of dragons, House of Dragon, the official trailer released for Game of Thrones prequel, is uh, also making the rounds on Comic Con. Dave, uh, were you able to check out this uh, trailer? I did, and it's fantastic. I am looking forward to seeing this. And you know, I think the casting is brilliant. You know, you, there, there's a young girl uh, who looks like uh, Sosie. Yeah. So we actually have Game of Thrones. Um, We've got it all. We haven't seen it all. So I wonder if this is going to be a great jumping off point for us, and then we'll get into the the series prime. But uh, I can't wait. Chris um, and I have been waiting for that moment to get into Game of Thrones, and I have a feeling it's going to come right after we finish Stranger well, Things. Well, you know something? I, I was late to the party on games, Game of Thrones, but we wound up binge-watching it early in the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, when everything was really locked down and yeah. we were just like in the house, you know, and <laughs> uh, and we loved it. I mean, we got into it. It was fantastic. It was really a terrific series. So I'm looking forward to, uh, uh, the you know, uh, House House of the Dragon. There you go. Well, me too. So I'm looking forward to that. Another trailer that hit the Comic-Con circuit was Universal Pictures, you know, the home of the monsters. With the upcoming Halloween ends hitting theaters October 14th. And this is on the heels of last year's uh, Halloween Halloween movie, which is uh, Halloween Kills. So uh, there you go. The ultimate confrontation between Lawrence hey, Grode, Jamie Lee he, Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis can do no wrong in my book. No, she is the original scream queen. That's right. And uh, as much as I'm not a big uh, horror uh, movie fan, uh, as far as like the slasher kind of films and those kinds of things that, uh, that get ground out every year, uh, I love these Halloween movies. I yeah. think they're fantastic. And a big part of it is because Jamie Lee Curtis is just a fantastic actress. She is. And um, John Carpenter is one of my favorite of all time. Uh, the, He's one of my favorites. The, the, origi the original, you know, the original John Carpenter Halloween that started it all yeah. is a fantastic film on its own. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then John Carpenter did The Fog. Yes. Remember the fog? Of course. Well, that was another fantastic film. Yeah. I really enjoyed that film. They're so, so good. And, and you know something? I love the old Universal horror movies. You know, last year I went and saw uh, uh, a restored print of uh, Bride of Frankenstein uh, at the Motion Picture Academy. Yeah. So I, I, I like those kinds of movies. But, you know, the, these, you know, slasher movies that make you, you know, drop a load in your pants. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> 
you know, <laughs> it's like, I, don't, I don't necessarily uh, like to go to those kinds of films. Well, I do, Dave. You see, we make a good team just because of that. Uh, but I am I'm a fan. You know, the thing about uh, the original Halloween that I love so much is that it's much like Jaws. Jaws is considered a great horror movie. Why? Because less is more. They use a theater of the mind. They they tease yeah. you with the impending doom, but don't really yeah, show I, it off until the very end. And the same goes for Halloween because it was all about that creeper, that crazy mask, just sneaking around, and that soundtrack that John Carpenter mm-hmm. actually did by himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was eerie and it's spooky. It's giving me goosebumps thinking about it, you know. And they need to get back to that basic premise. And I'm hoping they do with Halloween ends. If it all ends, which I doubt it. Uh, this is going to be a wonderful uh, kind of. And, and by the way, I never viewed Jaws Jaws as a horror movie. <clears throat> is that right? You know, yeah, I, I I've never viewed that as a horror movie. You know, in in the classic sense. You know, so I I just it's a, a suspenseful drama. Well, you know, w- w- uh, I, I would put but, I, I would put Jaws in the same in the same category as Psycho. Okay, all right, yeah. It's just kind and of I the like same. Psycho. Psycho's and, and that is. Yeah, a horror I think movie, I think it's right? just uh, there's certain horror movies I just don't want to go see. Subgenres. You, know? you don't like slasher films. There you go. <laughs> that, that's it. You know? Yeah, it kind of became a slasher film. I think Halloween Kills definitely was a slasher film. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't the 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 same vibe as Halloween. You know. Right. So uh, that would make for an interesting conversation, you and I. All right. Well, and speaking, uh, speaking of, uh, I was going to say, speaking of wrestling, that doesn't come out of nowhere. I, I, I was going to try to do a tie-in, and I totally failed on that. Speaking of a horror show. Speaking of a horror show, Vince McMahon retires <laughs> as chairman <laughs> and CEO of WWE. You know, Dave, it is a, uh, it's not a secret that I'm a fan of professional wrestling, have been since I was a child, uh, something my dad used to take me to uh, growing up. And uh, even though I'm kind of uh, lapsed in my fandom, I still keep up with the, with the product, as it were. And amidst all this uh, scandal that Vince McMahon has uh, found himself as of late with the payoffs and different things like that, uh, it seems like he is uh, stepping down and retiring. I don't know what he's going to do because he's been running the company for four years of his life. But his daughter, Stephanie McMahon, uh, is co-CEO along with Nick Khan, who is the who was the president of WWE, and they're going to be serving as co-CEOs. And I'm sure that's a kind of a mentoring position um, because co-CEOs just never last. <laughs> no, they uh, never do. And I'll tell you one thing: it, it's not. It's sort of like Vince McMahon is not really retiring if his daughter is taking over as a co-CEO. That's what a lot of people he's, are saying. He, he's going to have his finger in the pie or his strings on the puppet, as it were. Perhaps yeah. we'll yeah. just have to see, but I'm sure that's the case. And a lot of people are thinking that same thing, but yeah. you know, I think they did the right thing in terms of announcing it. Uh, if I'm a shareholder, I, uh, you know, they announced it at the end of the, uh, the day after the closing bell so that the stocks would kind of level out over the weekend. And yeah, they, you know, they need to have a McMahon probably there in name for a CEO, just for the stability of the stock. I, you know? Honestly, I have to tell you the WWE is Vince McMahon. You're right. You know, right. they're, they're, they're so intertwined. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, but uh, re- full retirement for Vince McMahon. Not right now. No, no way. He's a workaholic. He'll always I, be working. I, you know, on, on the surface, maybe, you know, to try to appease things because of the scandal, but you know, he's still going to have, it, it, this is sort of like succession. 
You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Honestly. It yes, it is. Right. Well, in some sad news as we move forward, Taurine Black, uh, who uh, is an Emmy-nominated actor, starred in the NBC soap opera generation. Dave, you sent me this article here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We know him from Hill street blues, but he, he very, was, very recognizable actor. Yes. And he, he was, uh, he passed away at the age of 82 this week. And, and you know, so what was amazing when I saw this, I was shocked because I had no idea he was 82. He, I, I just naturally thought he was much younger. Oh man. Yes. Uh, well from 89 to 90, uh, black played Henry Marshall opposite Vivica A. Fox and others on the cast member of the soap opera generations. And then people know him from Hill street blues. Um, so, I mean, and I know from Hill street blues, but yes, yeah, I mean, once yeah. again, I mean, he just is such a young looking actor. His resume included Oliver and company, Dave, Yes, he he vo- he was a voice in Oliver and Company. Ah, oh, yes, and 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 also Rocky Two. Uh, he was also in Taxi, Good Times, Bob Newhart, Charlie's Angels, Dream On. I mean, Sanford and Son, Tony Randall it, Show. It was, it was all that eighties nineties period, you know, where uh, all of those great television shows. You know, he was always guest starring on something. You know, yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, he survived with 12 children and 18 grandchildren and two great grandchildren. Wow. So uh, his, his uh, work will live on and uh, definitely be a uh, checking him out there. 12 children. The My yeah. gosh. I uh, was going to say he was, he was a prolific actor, but he was just prolific in life. Yes. It seems like the family genes will maintain <laughs> uh, for, for quite some time. So rest in peace. And now Dave, we are, we've come to our guest. Absolutely. Let's get on with it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, as always, and as we promised our listeners, we've got another fantastic guest, this time a returning guest, Rob Minkoff, who's the uh, co-director of The Lion King. He directed the live-action Stuart Little, Stuart Little 2, The Haunted Mansion, The Forbidden, for, <laughs> blah, 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 the for, forbidden Kingdom. Uh, you're, as forbidden, well, you're forbidden to say it. That's, there you go. Yeah. Uh, as well as Mr. Peabody and Sherman. And he's got a new movie coming out, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank. Uh, so, Rob, welcome back to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Yes, and our studio audience goes wild, as always, for our guests. Uh, so, Rob, you know, last time you were on, we talked a lot about your career and Cal Arts and how you got into the business. Um, but I, I really want to talk a little bit about the fact that you uh, became an animation director because you, you you directed uh, t- uh, the Roger Rabbit short, Tummy Trouble and Roller Coaster Rabbit. Uh, and then you co-directed The Lion King with Roger Allers. And then from there, you completely did a 180 and went into live action. Uh, but you haven't, you haven't completely left uh, uh, animation. So the question I have for you, what was it like really to transition from being an animation director to a live action director? It was the most difficult thing I've ever done. Really? <laughs> yes. Okay. It was hard for so many reasons. <clears throat> um, no, I, you know, it's interesting. The, the first thing that I directed uh, a live action thing I directed was a short for the theme park for MGM, uh, Disney MGM studio tour. Uh, it was in 1990. So it was even before Lion King and um, it starred Mel Brooks of all people. Oh wow! How, how surprising is that? Yeah. So I was uh, in my twenties. 
Um, and I had just come back from Florida having directed Roller Coaster Rabbit. Um, and I remember meeting both with Peter Schneider and Jeffrey Katzenberg to talk about my future. What did I want to do? And I, and, and I, in that meeting, I had said, you know, I, one of the things I've always been interested is, is in the idea of doing live action. And they were like, oh, okay, you know, um, we can, we can help you there. And so I ended up, uh, signing a long-term contract, which many people did, uh, uh, and one of the things that it said in the contract was that I, they were going to give me some kind of live action project to do. And so when I got back from LA, I got a call and they said, Hey, we want you to do this thing and go meet the producer who was a woman named Deborah Hill, who was famous for producing the haunted, uh, the, um, Halloween series, Halloween movies. Sure. That was, of course, one of which, and she worked with John Carpenter on other stuff. And I remember actually talking to her about, she came out to Cal Arts to shoot a movie with John Carpenter. I can't remember if what, I can't remember what the movie was. Maybe it was the thing or something. Um, but, uh, but I remember we were all there kind of excitedly watching as they got, got ready to do it. Anyway, she was the producer and, uh, it was, it was called Mickey's audition. And it was about, it was about Mickey mouse, coming to Hollywood in 1928 to do a screen test at the Walt Disney Studios. And they wanted to do it using this sort of um, idea that they had done, used for the Disney Channel, which they called Mickey's Hands. And what Mickey's Hands was were these little interstitials, these little bumpers that had some kind of a thing. And then you would see Mickey's Mouse's gloved hands um, and, and they would, and that was the only thing that you knew. That was the only way you knew it was Mickey mouse. It was just his gloved hands. <clears throat> and then he did something and they were like, let's, let's do it. Use, you know, in this style of Mickey gloved hands, uh, Mickey's hands. And so, uh, so we set about doing it, but it was right after, of course, Roger Rabbit had been made. And of course I'd worked on the Roger Rabbit shorts. Um, so we thought, well, you know, should it be done? The, the Mickey's hands for, for the Disney channel, I think we're in, we're done in 3d. They were like stop motion, Re, you know, kind of hands. And so we thought, no, 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 that doesn't really make sense because Mickey Mouse, he'd look, he'd be a tune, right? So even though we're going to do this sort of Mickey's hands treatment, we're going to, we're going to animate them. Um, but most of the, of it, most of the whole thing is from his POV. So it really featured all the live actors that were in it. And um, I remember in the script at one point we had uh, Michael Eisner show up uh, to talk about, you know, to, well, after, after, you know, years later, Mickey, of course, you know, becomes the symbol of the company. And then there was some kind of a bumper with, with Michael Eisner. And I remember, um, at the time thinking, gosh, you know, if we're going to put Michael Eisner in this thing, we really should put Walt Disney in it. I mean, come on, you know, so, and this, I was just about to say, this is the piece where you got Roy E. Disney, Sort of back, backlit to be Walt, yes. right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, so I was like, I think we should put Walt Disney in it. And everybody said, oh, that's probably a good idea. But who's going to do it? And I was like, I got their guy. I know exactly who can do it because Roy Disney Jr. looks exactly like Walt. And then the question was, would he do it? And I'm like, well, I'm just going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call him and I'm going to ask him. And that's exactly what I did. So I, and, and he said, sure, of course. I got, yeah, I got that, Roy right? on the phone. Yeah. I was like, Roy, you know, we're doing this thing about Mickey Mouse. And, you know, you look a lot like Walt and it would be great if you would do it. You know, is that crazy? Would you be willing to do it? And he's just like, sure, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. why not? It'll be great. <laughs> so uh, so we got to dress uh, Roy. And then the, the, the short lives somewhere. It's been years since I've seen it, but. Um, but we, yeah, we got, we got Roy Disney to play Walt. That was kind of a, a coup. 
was, and, and was that really your that that was sort of the first sort of like you're on a live action set doing yeah. an animation live action combination that was, was your a, your was first a, big sort it was of my first big thing and i i also remember when it when it came to working with mel brooks that was sort of led to a crazy moment um because you know mel brooks of course is mel brooks and i was a massive fan of mel brooks as i'm sure you know most of us are um and uh you know, uh, so they, they said, oh, you need to talk to Mel. You need to talk to him. I hadn't met him face to face, but you need to talk to me. You need to get on the phone. He's going in for a fitting with a costume designer and he's going to be expecting your call. So um, before that, there were the way that the, the piece was written is, you know, Mickey shows up in a kind of a, a lineup of, of, of Hollywood hopefuls. And there's a group of executives that come walking along the line, you know, sort of looking at everybody and then they end up looking at Mickey and they're like, he's got something interesting. Let's, let's pick him. He's going to do the screen test. And so it was just, it was written that there were these two executives and the boss who was kind of walking down the line. And, and the original idea was, well, we're going to get Mel. Oh, actually, no, the, sorry. The original, the original, sorry. The original, original casting was that Mel was going to play the director yeah. of the screen test. Yeah. Right. And so of course he had made the silent movie, you know, very famously sort of, had that, you know, look, uh, the look of being, you know, with the, with the kind of classic 1920s director look with this, with the ascot and the, and the jod per pants and the megaphone, all that stuff. Anyway, so he was going to play that part. And then Deborah Hill came in and she goes, you know, I think we should give Mel something more to do. I think he should be in the scene with the executives. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. Well that might work. Actually, it could be fun if he shows up with the two executives and they're all wearing suits, you know, like you'd expect an exact Hollywood executive. They're all wearing suits. But then in the next, in the cut, we then go onto the soundstage and the soundstage door opens up and we see the image, the silhouette of the director. And of course, we'd be surprised that the director is Mel Brooks, right? But now he's dressed in this new outfit. So, um, so that was my idea. I was like, we're going to have two costumes for Mel Brooks. And, and I call Mel Brooks while he's at the costume. Or actually, you know, I think he called me. He called me and the phone rings pick up the phone. He goes, Rob. I go, yeah, this is Mel. And I, and we had someone working on our set also named Mel. And so he goes, this is Mel. And I'm like, Mel, he goes, Mel, Mel Brooks. And I'm like, Oh my God, it's Mel Brooks. <laughs> so, so I said, yes, Mr. Brooks, what, uh, how's it going? He goes, well, I'm with the costumer, but I, you know, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why do you want me in two costumes? I'm like, well, you know, because, the, and I tried to explain, I was like, well, you know, the, the executives are coming through the line and, you know, this sort of a Hollywood kind of a thing, you know, the, the classic, you know, sort of uh, Hollywood executive. And then, and then I want that moment where we reveal that you're going to be the, the director of the screen test. He goes, no, I don't think that works. I don't think that works. I think we got to have one costume. I think the one costume is enough. I think that's what you got to do. You got to make me the director and I'll be the director in both scenes. And I was like, oh God, I'm like, okay. Now I, I was a moment I, and I felt like, oh God, okay. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm directing this thing, but Mel Brooks is on the phone. He thinks he should wear one costume. I'm the director. Do I, do I agree with him? Do I disagree with him? Do I argue with him? What should I do? You know, I'm only 28 years old and I'm having this kind of, I'm going through all this crazy mental gyrations in this moment as yeah. I'm trying to think well, how to answer Mel Brooks. And I said, okay, sure. <laughs> that was my, yeah, why not? I said, that makes sense. I get it. I think that's great. Okay. Well, so we'll just go with the one costume. And he goes, yeah, that's better. That's definitely better. I'm like, okay, great. So we decide he's going to go with the one costume. The next day I'm on the set. We still haven't started shooting, but we're setting up something and they're taking me on a tour, looking at different things. And somebody comes over to me and he goes, I've got Mel on the phone. I go, Mel? And he goes, yeah, it's Mel Brooks. I go, oh God. And so I get on the phone again. 
And he goes, Rob. I go, yeah. I've just been talking with my wife. And she thinks you're right. She thinks there should be two costumes. And of course, his wife is Anne Bancroft. Right. Oh, my God. (laughs) So... So I'm like, oh, and I'm, and I'm really, now I'm really having a meltdown. He's like, wait a second. He's, I'm like, this is some kind of test. This is a mind game, right? Because, because if I, if I say yes again, I'm just, I'm just such a, can I say, I don't want to, I don't want to well, say you're, you're like blow, you're blowing in, you're blowing in the wind, right? I'm blowing in the wind. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm another name for a cat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bad. I was like, I can't do that. Right. Like Jesus, like, what am I going to do? And Anne Bancroft thinks it's a good, and my idea is a good idea. And I'm like, oh God. And like, no, you know, and I think to myself, no, 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 no. You've got to have some spine. You've got to have a backbone. You've got to, you, you've got to at least commit. Show Mel, you're committed. And I said, no, Mel, I really think that the, your initial instinct was right. And I think we should go with the one costume. And he goes, I love that. That's great. I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> so that's what we did. At the end of the day, you could have said, I, I, you know, well, let's way, see who Schwartz is bigger Mel. than mine. <laughs> I, I, I hear Mel is a very nice guy. Oh my God. He's the nicest. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I, I know that because my sister was an executive over at Sony pictures and uh, she had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times. And she just said he was a sweetheart. He was yeah. just such a nice man. Yes. He, so, so you, you did that. That was your first uh, sort of uh, foray into live action, which, yeah. which really is a, is a different beast. I mean, you've got, you've got all these people doing sets and lighting and camera and the, you yeah. know, ADs and Purdue. I mean, it's, now, it's, now the, it's, it's a crowd of people on, it, on it, the, it, on the stage. It is a crowd of people, but the thing was, and that this also gets me back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I spent my many years of my childhood in the theater as an actor. And, you know, I, and I think we talked about this. We may have talked about this last yeah. time. I'm pretty sure we would have talked about this, but I met Kirk Wise. Right, right. Uh, performing at the Children's Theater. And we were doing a production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and all this crazy stuff. So, but both of us, that was, that was what we did. Every day after school, we would go be in a show and we would sort of like, so being around that kind of environment was totally second nature to me. In fact, I remember when I first went to CalArts, my, literally like my first time visiting there was in the summer uh, before the before the school year started, and it was deserted. And I walked down into the animation uh, room, one of the animation rooms, and I think it was Mike Gens. I think it was Mike Gens. I didn't know who he was, but he was sitting there. There's only one guy. It was just one guy, and it was so quiet, so dead. And he's there, and he's drawing something. And I, you know, I don't think he knew I was there, but he was like making sounds. He was making noises. He was like. He was like, he was doing some kind of crazy, like play, like like he was in a war, but clearly he was like drawing pictures and making sound effects. And I was like, this is really odd. <laughs> this is really strange. And, and ever since then, I remember this experience of going into an animation studio and it was like, God, it's so quiet. It's so, yeah. there's just nothing. It feels like there's nothing going on because again, when I, when I started working at Disney, I, I kind of had this image in my head that it was going to be like all those great Hollywood movies about, about what it's like to be in Hollywood at a studio and there'd be people bustle and hustle the people running around and, you know, all this great hullabaloo and activity and, and animation. It's like kind of like a mausoleum. It really is. It really is. I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and, and the difference when, when you get into live action, there's there's a tremendous it's, it's like 80 percent of the time is setting up the shots and 20 yeah. percent is actually doing the shot. 
like that's, doing it right where everybody's quiet and the actors say their lines, you know? Yes, yes, yes. That that's actually something I, I, I always, you know, I sort of feel like my job doesn't really begin until the, the set is lit and the actors come on, on the stage. And, you know, if you do a take, and you think, oh, that it was great. It works. You're like, nah, I got to do another one. Because I spent so much time getting here. Like, I can't leave this moment. Like, like let's do another take and another take and another take. And, and, then, and, yeah. and, and we, we both know that oftentimes, some, oftentimes the first take is the best take. Absolutely. Right? I mean, they, they just hit it. And, and when you sit there and ask for, well, let, let's do another take and maybe tweak this a little bit and, and whatnot, you're still thinking to yourself, gee, that first take was it, but, sure. but, but what, what, what's the, what's the norm as far as takes go for a shot in a live action film? Do you do two or three takes and then <clears throat> you're done? You know what? It totally depends. And it changed over time. I think when I was just starting, it was more takes, you know, I would, Mm -hmm. because I would, because, you know, I feel like, Oh, I got to make sure I've got the right version. I've got the right moment. I've got the right, you know, expression or the right thing. And I remember on, on Stuart Little, um, uh, Hugh Laurie sort of commented to me, he's like, you know, this must be really difficult for you because you can't erase my eyebrow. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, It is kind of difficult because you know, when you're an animator and you're working with animators on a shot, you can there, you can do so much, right? You have so much control over what goes on in the scene. You know, as a director, you can be like, I'm going to do a draw over. And like, I'm going to draw this. I'm going to draw this expression right over. You know, don't always do that. In fact, you know, right. you try not to do that, but you can do that. Sure. Uh, but in live action, you know, it's tricky. You know, that's that there's a whole art to that because, you know, in animation, animation is in a way very result oriented, right? You're talking about what happens in the scene, what, what the physical movements are, right? And you know, the expression, the, 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 the emotion, the expression, the emotion, the, the, but you're talking about the body, the specific body language. I mean, you're talking about the, the, the arch of an eyebrow or the, or the angle of a head and how that influences or, or, or really expresses an idea. Uh, but you can't really do that in live action because you really are dealing with an actor and the actor is entirely in charge, is completely in control of their performance. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell them, in a sense, you can't tell them what to do. You have to tell, you have to give them information. You have to give them help to understand what the character is going through in the scene, yeah, what, yeah. The, well, you know, what the moment is and what they're, what the, how they're coming at the moment. But you're usually talking about intentions, not about results, right? Not about what, you know, so, so it, it definitely was a shift for me to kind of get my head out of one thing. One of the biggest challenges for me was, and this was shooting uh, the first Stuart Little movie, because again- Which, which com- by the way, I, I just want our listeners to know, if you haven't seen Stuart Little, the live action Stuart Little, it is absolutely a fantastic film. I thoroughly enjoyed Stuart Little. Uh, I was a big fan of E.B. White uh, stories, uh, Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little and whatnot. Uh, just a really terrific film. Sorry, Rob. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. So, absolutely. So <laughs> so doing the Mickey's audition short was was um, simple because we literally had all of these points of view shots. That was all we could do. We weren't cutting. We weren't, go, there was nothing. It was just this one kind of point of view. So that was all we were dealing with. And so that was very specific. Now on Story Little, we're making a, a movie and we have to make it out of pieces, which, which movies are made of. And in animation, you know, it's it, animation is known for 
doing planning everything first, right? You do a storyboard, you do layouts, and then you animate the scene and you're only going to animate one shot, one, one, one shot, you know, per moment. You're not, you're not going to do what's known as coverage. Now, when I started on Stuart Little, I don't think I even knew what coverage was. Right. I had no idea. So when we set up our, our first scene to shoot, we were we were we picked our angle and it was, you know, something of Gina Davis. And I and we shot literally it was like I called action. She read one line of dialogue and I said, cut. And she went, what? And I and I said, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I can I can do more more lines. And I said, I don't need them. I just need this one moment of you in close up doing this one line. That's how I've planned the scene. And she's like, Okay. <laughs> now, Rob, did you did you storyboard? Uh, did you do storyboards? Yes, yes. So we story, you, the whole so movie. We, the whole yeah, movie? We, we storyboarded. It was that's a whole that's a big story. But um, it, we yes, as as much as we could. In fact, um, some some things we didn't, and I can get into that. That was definitely there are layers of the story that I can get plum, you know, plum, you know, uh, uh, plum. Um, but but this one thing was I, I was shooting these shots that were just covering the the, the line that I needed. And I think maybe I, I, we did an extra line because like, Oh, she wants to read more lines. It's fine. And after the first week of shooting, the studio came to the set and it was like a, a big moment. The studio came to the set, the head of production came to the set and said, Rob, what, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you can't shoot the movie like this. I said, why not? He goes, cause just, it's not done. It's not done. You have to have coverage. I do. He goes, yes, you have to, you have to shoot everything from every angle. There, there needs to be different ways of cutting it. Like there, there does like, yes. So literally on the job of shooting this movie, I'm like, I guess I have to learn how to do this. Like, I don't really, I didn't go to film school. I went to animation school. I studied how to make animated movies. And now suddenly I've got to do it this other way. And the studio is expecting me to do it this other way. I better learn in a hurry. So I actually completely shifted how I was going about shooting this film while we were in production. So that first week, were you just shooting one camera, one angle? Basically. Yeah. I mean, and, I'm and, not sure it was a whole week, but. And, and you didn't have a, an AD come over to you and say, Hey Rob. Oh no, the AD. Oh no. Well, actually, no, the AD was, <laughs> I'm not sure she was, she was, yeah, she was really helping me because she said, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> Why not? She was like, she was like okay, "Okay." Oh boy! So she she could have she could have given me a little bit of uh, uh of more you know a little because there's there's there guidance. there are super as you well know I'm sure there's super experienced ads out there that that can pull people over and say hey you know oh of I, course of course of course I mean again you know uh it was just a crazy it was crazy to be in that in that situation and the movie was was very expensive as you know, it was sure. a, a big budget film. It was, you know, cost over a hundred million dollars to make. And that was in 2000, you know, 1999, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, but it was like, I'm learning on the job. I have to figure out how to do this while I'm doing it. And, uh, thank God it, it worked out. You know, it's so funny because I, I remember, uh, bumping into the producer, Lawrence Bender, who had produced all the, uh, Quentin Tarantino movies. And we were, you know, we knew we were acquainted and I saw him some out somewhere and we were in post-production and he goes, how's it going? And I go, good. What are you working on? I told him Stuart Little and he goes, oh yeah, how much, how big is the budget? And I told him it was over a hundred million. And he looked at me and he was like, oh my God. He's like, well, you could have the shortest career in Hollywood history. <laughs> if that doesn't work. Is that what he said? He did. Yes, he did. How'd that make you feel? <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate that. That's great. That's a good vote of confidence there. Thanks. Well, yeah, but that's part of the learning curve, isn't it? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let me ask you this of uh, because you've had so much experience in live action, what do you prefer animation or live action? Or is it sort of like you, you like to bounce between the two? Um, you know, it's, it's so funny. It, you know, they're so different, you know, it's, it's a really a different process. Live action is much more like, it's much more frenetic. You know what I mean? You really animation is much more of a marathon. It's very deliberate. You know, you sort of, it's, it's more of a nine to five kind of, type of job, you know, right. sort of, you come in in the morning, you, you know, you have your day and then you go home. So it's actually really good for having a family. Animation yeah. is, is very good. And it was great to be able to make the movie I just made. We actually did it during COVID and, uh, and my kids of course were at home because of COVID and I was home also actually right here, sitting right at this desk, pretty much just like this, um, making the film, um, because the studio was in Montreal uh, so, yeah, so it's hard to say because they're just, the experiences are so different. You know, obviously when I went to China to work on the forbidden kingdom, uh, I, I, it was such an amazing experience to be there and to be working with Jackie Chan and Jet Li. And, um, you, you can't even compare that to, to, to working in animation. So it's, it, it, they're both great. You know, they both and, have and their, they're both very different. They're both very different and they have their, they also have their, their unique challenges too. Meaning sure. that, you know, neither, neither of them are easy. <laughs> neither yeah. is, neither but, is easy. Both but, are, but, both are yeah. But, but animation really during the pandemic, which is now stretching on more than two years, animation really flourished during uh, the pandemic. Uh, yeah. I, I think you and I both know tons of people in the industry who were just busy as hell, but they were just all working at home. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the great thing about uh, about animation and, and COVID was that it was totally compatible, meaning, you know, uh, this notion that that actually people could be working from their homes on their computers, um, you know, and then what, what was great actually was was Zoom. Uh, Zoom really saved us because when we started on the project, um, it was pre pre lockdown, but very close to lockdown. It was December of 19. And uh uh, I, I, I traveled to Montreal to visit with the studio and I never worked, I hadn't worked with any of the people there. So I was really just getting to know them and I was only able to be there for a couple of days, <clears throat> but then I would come back and we would have these zoom meetings. And usually there would be a room full of people and it would be like 30 people in the room. And I would be in the zoom window, but then there would be the, what I'm looking at is like a, a bunch of little tiny people. And it would be hard for me to know who I was talking to. Like I'm hearing somebody's voice like who's talking yeah. and what do they do? What's their job? I don't know. I'm not sure. So the minute we uh, went into lockdown, they sent everybody home from the studio and everybody was suddenly signing into their own zoom window. Now, suddenly you could see who you were talking to. You, you, you could completely relate to what they were going through and you could really feel that the communication was happening. You could really feel like, Oh, they're getting it. Like, and because it was, uh, you know, like, this it pushes you to be really 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 articulate to be really clear with your right. with your directions you've got to make sure to be really specific you have to know when the artist doesn't quite understand what you're saying like they're not getting this and you don't want to end the meeting that was actually something i learned very early on uh, at disney from eric larson eric larson said never leave a director's room until you know what you're doing because, you know, you could if you if you were in the room and you're like, I don't think I quite understand what they were asking me for. And if you left the room, it's then suddenly you're sitting at your desk going, God, I'm not really sure 
how to, how to do this. So it, it, I've always felt that kind of a keenly, this, this notion that it's my job to, to be really clear or to make sure that I understand or that the person I'm talking to understands. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Pause of Fury uh, because that released uh, on the 15th of yes, July. It did. It did. Uh, it's out in the theaters. Uh, and you said you started in December of, of 2019, but I've read some reports that this film has been gestating for a decade. Gestating so, so, is a good word. So, so yeah. take it, take us back, take us way back in time, and tell us like, oh when did God. you get, when did you get involved with this? Was this sure, your sure, idea? Sure, sure, did sure, you sure. go to Melbourne? What? You know, tell no, us no, no. Uh, so yeah. what happened was, it was back in 2014, believe it or not. So set your way back machine. Uh, 2014, I was finishing up Mr. Peabody and Sherman, and uh, uh, my friend Ed Stone, who was one of the uh, screenwriters of this movie, uh, Ed is somebody I've worked with. Uh, on almost every movie I've made, starting with Stuart Little, um, he was introduced to me by a, to, by a mutual friend who's a producer named Jason Clark. And Jason had helped them get this movie, uh, this independent film called Happy Texas, kind of up and running. And Ed was the writer of that and producer. And uh, we were working on Stuart Little. And, um, you know, we were uh, pressed for time. There was, a, there was a lot of script work that had been done uh, out of necessity, but it was done kind of in the last weeks running up to production. Quite a lot of the script had had to go through a change. This relates to what you'd asked me about storyboarding. Well, we storyboarded as much as we could, but of course, as the script changes, you've got to keep up with those changes. And at a certain point, we just didn't have any time. Uh, and I remember being quite nervous about going onto a set without without a storyboard sort of planned out. And uh, our our DP, uh, a fantastic, amazing uh, DP named Guillermo Navarro, who's done so many great films. He's also a director. Um, but he was like, you know, Rob, don't worry, I'll 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 walk you through it. And we would, you know, we'd like show up on the set. And we had no storyboards and we'd have to figure out what's, how are we going to shoot the scene? What's the blocking? What's the camera blocking? And it made it particularly difficult because Stuart was never going to show up to the set, right? Stuart was going to be added later. So we had to figure out where was Stuart. And so he would, you know, we had this thing called the Stuart stuffy. It was a little thing. We'd put him on the table or on the chair or on the floor, wherever he was going to be. And we'd have to kind of block the scene and then figure it out. So we did that. Um, so, uh, uh that was a bit of a tangent. So, so we're back to pause of fury 2014 Ed Stone. Oh yes. So Ed Stone. Uh, so we, we were, uh, uh, doing a scene in, in Stuart little, um, where Stuart gets thrown into the washing machine. I don't know if you remember that moment, but, but uh, he goes down the laundry chute by accident he ends up in the, in the clothes basket and Gina Davis throws him into the a washing machine unwittingly. She doesn't know he's in there and she sets the machine going and suddenly the water starts going and the door is locked and Stuart is there and Snowbell suddenly comes up and sees Stuart. Now, we, 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 we had literally invented this scene the day that we were going to shoot it. So there was no storyboard. So there wasn't even a script. Mm. There was just like, here's kind of a funny moment. There's like a great moment here. Stuart gets thrown in the washing machine. What's going to happen? And Snowbell's going to walk in, of course. And then Snowbell gets up to the washing machine. And it's, it was a, a moment screaming out for a funny line of dialogue. And so Jason Clark said, I'm going to bring my friend uh, Ed Stone. And so Ed showed up uh, uh, in, the tr in the cutting, in the editing trailer on a Saturday, probably, or Sunday, uh, a day off of shooting. And, uh, 
And so we sat down and I think I had shot, actually had shot all the footage already. So I'd shot the scene. I'd shot the snowball, the cat coming in, looking, you know, getting close up, looking inside the washing machine and then turning around and leaving. And uh, we're like, I don't know what he's, what's, what do you, what do you, what should he say? And the first thing I'd came up with uh, was, you know, Stuart says, Snowball, please turn it off, turn it off. And Snowball goes, why should I turn it off? It's my favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> and so thus began a beautiful friendship. So, you know, Ed is that guy who will come in on a project and, and pitch jokes and gags and stuff, you know, at the end of a project, which is a very common thing to do in animation. Yes. You can also do it in live action. You sort of do the round to the writer's round table and you try to sweeten the movie by adding, you know, as many jokes as you can at the end. Cause you always want more jokes. Sure. Um, and so, so Ed and I go way back. And then, uh, so in 2014, um, uh, we were together and I, I said, what are you working on? And he said, I'm working on this movie. I just wrote a script called Blazing Samurai. And I said, oh, wow, that's a great title. I said, what? I said, is it, does it have anything to do with Blazing Saddles? And he goes, yeah, it's actually based on Blazing Saddles. I said, are you really? I said, are you, I said, is Mel Brooks involved? And he goes, yeah, he's a producer. I'm like, oh my God. I was like, this is amazing. Can I read the script? And he goes, yeah. So I read the script and I was surprised, I think. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect, but it was, it was actually meant to be animation, but it was a human story. So it was actually more similar to Blazing Saddles in that it was about a, 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 a black guy who goes to Japan. Right. And, 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 but they kind of hate him and are sort of being prejudiced against him. And I remember reading the script going, God, this is kind of, I'm, I feel kind of awkward about right. this. I don't think, it was like, I don't think we could talk about race like this now i just don't feel like right, in 1974 right. when that movie was made it was obviously in, incredibly it's a seminal comedy it was cutting edge you know it, it but it and it, it you know it talked about race in a way that you know was groundbreaking and it, and and uh, but you know, in in but that movie know, couldn't 20, be made. That movie couldn't be made today. Not at all, and and no reason yeah. you'd want to make that movie today. So I read right. the script and I was like, you know, there maybe is a way to do it because I think that the story about a character <clears throat> that's that is being prejudiced against uh, because he's different is a, is a good story. I mean, it's sure. a, it's it's something. It's a great meaning for today. It's a and, it's a don't don't judge the book by its cover type it's, of. It, Exactly. And so, but I said, you know, maybe this would work better if it was a fable, you know, it could be an animal story. And then I pitched this back to him. I was like, maybe it could be about a dog who's becomes a samurai in a world of cats. Right. And so the cats of course hate him because he's a dog. And Ed was like, I think that's a good idea. And so that was, that was how I got involved in the project. And, and, and so that's 2014. And so tell me what was going on between then and December of 2019 well, when you we, actually went into production on sure, it. Because sure, sure. It, well, we it, it, churning around. Well, we had we had really begun in earnest uh, long before. I mean, I I mean maybe we had started in 2015, uh, maybe or 2016. So we were really starting to go. Um, and Chris Bailey came on the project and Mark Kutsir came on the project. Uh, I was a producer on the project at the time. Um, but there were just some, it, first of all, the most importantly, the film was, was an independent film. Uh, so it was independently financed. And, um, if you've, if you've, you know, I, this was not the first independent film I've worked on. Um, and there can be a whole raft of other kinds of complications, of an independent film when it comes to the financing that 
don't ever happen when it's a studio right. where the studio is, is the, is the financier basically is the bank for the movie. You, you, you know, you make the movie and you know, you, you, you kind of ha- always have that, uh, uh, that engine is always running. Yeah. So we were working early days and there were some hiccups, uh, you know, I mean the best way to describe it is there were some hiccups. And so at a certain point, the studio that was working on the project uh, was a different animation studio called arc. And they uh, quite surprisingly, quite shockingly um, uh, shut down. They, they, I mean, went, literally, they, they went bankrupt, right? Correct. So they went yeah. bankrupt while we were in production. Wow. And, um, and so we just fully shut down the movie. Uh, we, we had a, a difficult time getting back the materials that they had created. They had created quite a lot of materials for the movie and it was very complicated. But, you know, but the, that becomes an asset in the bankruptcy, right? Correct. And, well, correct. And, but, and then they sell that, don't they? In order to try and satisfy their debtors, <clears throat> their debts. Well, that can happen. Yeah. So, so um, I, I wasn't, I was never really directly involved in, in any of that kind right. of um, part of the business. So I was sort of sitting by waiting for it to get worked out. And, um, you know, eventually, 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 it took a long time for it to get worked out, but the, the project went into hiatus. And so um, basically everybody was sent home and it took quite a while for it to kind of get reignited. And it did get reignited when um, Cinecite, um, which is a you know big animation, big visual effects and animation studio based in London, but they have studios in in Canada as well. Um, it's a big company. They ended up seeing the project, which which was really just in story reel, and um, and they really liked it, and they got involved, and then uh, all the all the pieces were sort of put back together again. But this was, of course, in like I said, in 2019. Yeah, what, so, what's the, <clears throat> what, Cinecite's animation arm is the something. I can't remember off the top of my They're head. They're called Anaventure. Anaventure. Is that, is that what you're thinking of? No, I was thinking of uh, another company. It's three letters. Um, it'll come to me. Okay. But uh, I, mean, they, I they, thought they, Cinecite owned them. Oh, they, no, they, you know, something Technicolor owns that company. You're thinking yeah. of, uh, oh, which one? Uh, they, they did work on the uh, John Favreau Lion King. Oh, that one. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, MP, MPC. MPC, that's it. MPC. Yeah. The mo- motion picture company. That's correct. What it's correct, called. correct. Yeah. Different MPC. company, different, different, yeah, yeah. different studio. So, um, so there you go. So that's how, so, so that, so, so we, you know, we really almost had two crews on the film, we really, you know, cause we had crewed up the movie the first time and then, and then after the shutdown and then it went to Cinecite. So we worked with a completely different group of people and Mark Kutzier uh, was able to come on the project, but Chris was busy working on another thing. And so he couldn't, couldn't return. Oh, so he didn't come on for the end production. No, he, he worked on the first half of the movie, but you know, much of what, right. he, what he did obviously was still in the movie. So sure. of course he has a, a director credit yeah, because yeah. of this yeah. contribution. And I'm curious um, when you say you had to do a new crew, even some of your lead animators that were, you know, had had sort of taken on characters when you were first in production, they obviously sort of went to the wind and got onto other projects and things. Did you bring any of those folks back? Were you able to reach out to them and say, Cinecide, can you hire this animator? Not really. Not this. I mean, not, in a perfect I, world. Yes, not, but not now. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, if, if, 
<clears throat> I would say if that happened, no one told me. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so, uh, but, and then I shifted kind of from, you know, uh, being a, a creative producer to being, you know, a director on the film at, at kind of on the second, you know, the, the second, uh, the second leg of the uh, journey. The second leg of the journey, exactly. Yes, and, and uh, well, so you you were dealing with Cinecite in the Toronto office, yeah, and not Toronto. There, they were in uh, Montreal, Montreal. But but there's a there's really a tremendous talent pool of animators up in Canada, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. So absolutely. any familiar names that uh, you worked with that were uh, on the on the project? You know, nobody that I nobody that I nobody that I had known before. Okay, nobody that was like a former Disney animator that went back to Canada or I mean, anything like that. I mean, you know, that. gosh, it was. Well, this is you're gonna you're gonna test my memory. I, I there I'm sh there were a number of people that worked on the project that had Disney experience, but we didn't we weren't there. Right. You know, we maybe sure. it was after I'd left Disney, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this comes becomes part of the 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 fodder of of getting to know people on the project, but not not you know it wasn't like. It wasn't like Andreas Deja. It wasn't like, right, right, right. like oh, it was Glenn Keane worked on a project. It wasn't like Dog Brothers or something. <laughs> it wasn't, like it, it wasn't yeah. like that. So what, what are people, pe people that, you know, we would both know? Uh, yes. I, I, it's a great question. You'd have to look at the screen. Yeah. Credits and yeah, we, yeah. We, we could assess it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, a lot of people worked in the first round, you know, were, were more, um, um, you know, were people who had, uh, that yeah, shared experience, but you know, because, uh, Lisa Poole, for instance, Lisa yeah, Poole was working on was a production manager on it going in the yeah. first version be, because you were doing it in town. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, once you got to December of 2019, you had your first meetings up in Montreal, you come back, COVID hits and everybody just quickly pivots to zoom. Basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, and, we, yeah. So, I mean, nobody, no, you know, who, nobody expected that. Right. I mean, we know nobody knew it was going to happen. It just sort of all happened so quickly. And then we are like, okay, everybody's going to be sent home. And what are we going to do? And we're like, well, we're not going to stop. <laughs> we're going to keep going. The crazy thing was, is that, you know, we had to still do a lot of, of uh, voice records. A lot of the actors had to record and the actors obviously wouldn't go into a recording studio and so we ended up basically just like we put a, a suite of equipment together and packed it into a Pelican case and literally would ship it to, to their houses and have them set it up themselves. Wow. And yes. And, uh, you know, I, I actually did a video of myself showing how easy it was to put together the equipment and set up the <laughs> mic stand and put the screw this in here and plug that in there. And, uh, and so everybody did it. And, you know, it wasn't without its hazards. We had, we had a one session with Mel Brooks where, um, he had got it all set up in this room in his house and suddenly we were going to do the session and, and they discovered that the Wi-Fi signal was terrible in that room. Oh, and okay. so we couldn't communicate. We're like, Oh my God, this is terrible. So they were like, well, we're going to have to move the recording equipment. So they moved it into a room nearby that had good Wi-Fi, but the AC was running through the whole session. Oh, and Mel did great, great work. And we didn't really know it was a problem because we weren't hearing it properly and so it wasn't until we got the, the 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 recordings back that we were like oh my god it's got this terrible hum through the whole thing and so we're like are we gonna have to record mel again i was like i don't want to i was like jesus i mean he did great great work and so 
we ended up sending it to Skywalker Sound as like, can you fix this? And they did. Thank yeah, they 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 did, it did a sort of like what you would do in digital restoration. You'd go through and separate out the uh, the noise. That's know? what they that's what they yeah. did, and it, it you know added a and little. It worked out, right? It worked out great, and and yeah, we were able to preserve the performances. That was again one of the things that I remember learning um, in my early early days of of live action. Um, I had shot another thing after I did the Mickey's audition. They had me shoot a test. They were thinking about doing a baby Herman TV show. Right. Right. And so they're going to vaguely be, remember that yes. baby Herman is uh, baby Herman. And he has like a lay in a live action sitcom. And so they said, Rob, you're going to shoot the, the pilot, you know, which was just a short scene. It was probably five pages long. And they were like, we're going to, we're going to send a, a more experienced director to kind of be your mentor. And so there was a guy there and he, he made me really nervous because, because he was like, you got to make sure that you get it on film. If it's not on film, it's a waste. <laughs> so shoot the rehearsals, always shoot the rehearsals. You're like, okay, I'm going to shoot the rehearsal because you know, it's, that's the magic. It's the magic. When the magic happens, you gotta, you gotta be rolling. And you're like, okay, okay, I gotta be rolling with the magic happens. So that has made me actually, I like, I carry that with me to this day. Even in, and when we record actors, you know, for, for an animated thing, you're like, I don't want them to waste a performance when we're not rolling. In fact, it like, it kills me if the engineer, I go, did you get that? He goes, no, we're not, we weren't rolling. You're like, oh God, we, we missed the magic. We missed the magic. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, you know, uh, I guess the, the question would be it, when you've done other live action projects, did you have the cameras rolling when you were uh, doing rehearsals? Not not often rehearsals. No, no so no. it's just sort of. But you also don't. The actors will very typically not give you a performance in rehearsal. The actors don't waste it, right? The actors okay. will sort of, right. you know, they'll kind of do their they're, lines. They're gonna walk. They're gonna walk through it. They're gonna walk through it. They're not gonna want for that very same reason. They're not gonna want to do their best performance and then suddenly find out it didn't get recorded. And then what's the point? So right. they right. they know that they are they're your partner in that. Yeah. So um, uh, as far as uh, th them setting up the equipment to do the voiceover, did, were there any mis other mishaps or anything like that? And were most of the actor or all of the actors very like sort of, oh, hey, this is cool. I, we'll, we'll do this, you know, just because you know, they were adapting to the situation. Yeah, everybody was game. Everybody did their best. Everybody just like, whatever, this is what we got to do. We're going to do it. And, uh, um, you know, there were, there, you know, it's there are lines that, you know, got overmodulated in, in the recording and we had to, you know, we had to go back or do a, you know, do ADR, um, which is something you avoid doing in animation, especially. Yeah. Um, and for those of you that don't know, ADR is automatic dialogue replacement, which is what you do in a live action film when you've shot the film. And um, for whatever reason, you could be outdoors and there's too much noise and they didn't get a clean recording of the actors and they've got to replace the dialogue. So they'll, you know, you'll bring the actor in and then they have beeps, right? Beep, beep, beep. And then they'll record a line watching themselves on the screen and they'll try to match exactly the performance that they had given <clears throat> when it was shot originally. And so that's done whenever necessary in a live action film. But in animation, the whole idea is to animate the performance to the dialogue, to the, to the vocal performance of the actor. So you never really ever want to do that. Right, right. And uh, uh, as far as animation production goes, it went relatively smoothly for you. Yeah, I mean, it was it was surprising that we managed to stay on 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 schedule and on, and on budget. And uh, 
we never really missed a beat. It was great. I mean, I've got this, you can't see it here, but I've got this great, oh, I'll just pull it over here. Giant screen. Giant Cintiq. Yeah. Right here. Um, this Wacom Cintiq. Um, and so when you're doing, doing reviews, right, you're, you're seeing, I'm seeing this, the shot on my computer, right? I'm, I've got my iMac here and I've got my, I've got a big screen. And so you see the shot and then, you know, I can drag it over to the Cintiq and I can draw, you can draw in real time. Um, uh, and, and everyone who's in the meeting gets to see what you're doing. And it's actually super functional because if you're doing the same thing, you know, you can't really, it's really hard to do the same thing. I mean, you have to do it like this. Um, you know, um, so yeah, it, it works really well. And editorial sessions were actually really great doing this way because, uh, typically if, if you're, you know, we weren't in COVID, you'd be sitting in the editor's room kind of facing the back of your editor, right? You're seeing the back of his head and you're seeing what he's doing and there's a lot of sounds going on. You know, you give a note and then there's a lot of stuff and then eventually the, the editor is ready to kind of show it to you. And you're sitting on the couch or whatever in the chair behind the editor waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, if you're doing it at, you know, at home at my desk and looking at the screen, first of all, you never see the editor, right? You just see the shot, you know, you see it, you give the note, Time goes by and then suddenly the editor goes like, ding, and it's right there, right in front of you. And you can see it, uh, uh, see it again. You're like, great. So it's, it, it was actually made it a, in a way, a better experience. And uh, as far as uh, uh, working that way, uh, you, you just said it, it was a better experience for you, but uh, the same with the animators and was your day, based off of Eastern standard time because of Montreal, were you like a little earlier in your home office having your meetings and then breaking uh, mid afternoon and like, I'm done for the day. Yeah. So we, you know, we, so the day would get pushed to the, to the earlier hours, which was fine because when you got kids, that's, that's the time you're up and around. And um, yeah. And then we would, we would be done with the day, around two or three o'clock because, you know, they were finishing up their day. So it gave me, you know, extra time to do, to work on other, other stuff. And uh, do you want to give our, our uh, listeners just a little taste of what uh, pause of fury sort of the, the, I mean, I could read it, you know, no, here, no, no. well, but, you know, I'd rather hear it from you. Sure, sure, sure. Well, it's, as I said, the story, it's about a dog named Hank played by Michael Sarah. Uh, who wants nothing more than to be a samurai, but uh, it turns out that in order to become a samurai, he has to go to a world that is filled exclusively with cats. And so they have absolutely no interest in him uh, because he's a dog. In fact, it's worse than that. They hate him because he's a dog. Um, and and it very much like, uh, like it's uh, um, the movie it's based on, um, the villain of the piece wants to destroy, wipe out the town um, and so he, uh, he manages to, uh, to scare away the samurai, the town samurai that's acting very much like a, like a sheriff would, um, uh, in this kind of construct, because we were really doing a kind of Eastern Western mashup, you know, it wasn't sure. really purely Eastern. Um, and so, uh, they need, the town needs a, a protector, right? The town needs a protector and the villain, um, basically rescues Hank from the firing squad. He's about to be, you know, put to death and uh, he rescues him and gives him the job of becoming the town samurai with the kind of the idea that, you know, he'll be terrible. He'll be the worst, you know, samurai ever. 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, again, surprising everyone, he rises to the occasion after meeting uh, Jimbo, who is a kind of a fallen samurai who's sort of in early retirement, um, you know, uh, living in the jail, basically uh, uh, drinking too much catnip. Uh, because he's had some tragedies, uh, tragedy in his life, which has sort of get, give, you know, uh, made him hang up his sword. Uh, but he meets uh, Hank, and Hank asks him to come out of retirement to help train him, which he does reluctantly, but does. And, of course, they form a beautiful bond of friendship. And, uh, and, and Jimbo is, is voiced by Samuel L. Jackson. By Samuel L. Jackson, who is just um, an amazing, I mean, we all know, you know Samuel Jackson is just a superstar for a lot of reasons, but he's so great in everything he does, including this film. And nice guy. Uh, amazing. I mean, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's, 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 you know, he puts you through your paces as a director. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, and I wouldn't say he's an easy guy. Okay, okay. but he's he's a, he's a he's super talented. And, and uh, was he uh, was he talented in setting up his recording equipment? Uh, he did a great job. Excellent, good. <laughs> and then the villain uh, that you're you're mentioning the villain, uh, Ricky Gervais, the Vicky of the Vicky. The villain is played by Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Um, and, and, and was was he here in Los Angeles or was he? No, in England, he was or? he was in England. So everything we did with him was in England. Okay. I, we never actually had to record him at home. Um, the sessions that we did with him were in a studio. I actually went uh, to London to re- to record with him. Uh, in an early session. And then um, it had worked out that we managed to always uh, get him into a studio. Uh, I think they had, by the time we needed him, they had figured out the kind of the COVID protocols that allowed them to record, uh, you know, the one actor, you know, at some point it it became possible to get back into a a studio again, as long as there was, you know, minimum, minimal contact and the engineers would basically stay out of the way of the actors and, Everybody would wear a mask, of course. Social distancing and this. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and what about George Takai? Because I would be remiss if I didn't bring up George Takai. Because Al John is a. I have to to correct you. It's it's George Takai. Takai. Okay, excuse me. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I, I made that mistake for a long time before I met George Takei. And he was like, no, it's George Takei. Okay. Excellent. Rob, I appreciate you correcting me because if I ever met him, I would say George Takei. Although I could be starstruck and say George Takei. So there you go. Exactly. <laughs> but now, you know, now, you know, just, uh, just, just trying to help a friend out, help a brother out. <laughs> Al John, you must have a question about George Takei. Yes, I do actually, because I did meet George when I was a teenager, lucky enough at a Star Trek convention, and he spent all day with me. It was amazing. He probably doesn't remember me, and I don't blame him. But, <laughs> but oh, wow. But but knowing that, I mean, when you were working with with George or any of these 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 legends of of the industry, you know, um, when he comes back to you and he gives a note, would he would he often say like, "Well, I believe my my character should." should do it like this or, you know, uh, was he open to, uh, to doing those different, uh, the different iterations, the different takes uh, on, on his character? Yeah. I, I find it's interesting. I, I find that actors for animation have a slightly different approach than an actor in a live action film. Um, probably because they work much less, you know, if you're in a live action film, they're there on the set, you know, depending on their role, they're going to be there every day, but it's also them on camera 
And so their focus and attention is quite different. Um, when you're, when you're with uh, an actor for animation, they're in a way they're much more relaxed, right? They're mm-hmm. much more, you know, and, and we like to be, uh, to create a kind of a creative environment for actors to, to be able to have fun and to, you know, to make it more of more play than work. Um, because, you know, you want to push the actors, you want to try to get them to do things that, you know, they may not be, that may not be in their comfort zone. That reminds me of a, a Lion King story, which I might've told last time. But, um, you know, when we started, when I started on the movie, um, the character of, of Rafiki was quite different. He was a very serious character. Well, he wasn't a shaman witch doctor. Uh, he was more of an elder statesman and he was in the early first act of the movie talking to Mufasa very seriously about the problem they were having with Scar. And, uh, and, and then when I got involved in the project, one of the first things that we did was just said, gosh, you know, we really need to add a spiritual dimension to the story. Wouldn't it be great if Rafiki was a kind of a, of a more spiritual character, a shaman witch doctor. And, and so, uh, Robert Guillaume had already been cast in the role. And Robert Guillaume, of course, at the time was famous for a show called Benson, where he was very, very serious and very mm-hmm. straight. And that was kind of his persona. And that's what he had done in that, in the, in the early recording session. And, and, uh, we talked to Don Hahn, the producer, and was like, I, maybe, I don't know, we might need to recast this role. And Don said, no, you know, we got to, we hired him and, you know, he's an actor. He got to work with them. Right. Just because that's what you're familiar with, that doesn't mean he's not capable of doing it. So uh, at least we're going to try. And so we went to the session with Robert Guillaume and we said, hey, you know, we've completely reconceived the the movie and the character and um, we need to try something different. And he and he did it like he had been doing it, which was very serious and very straight. And we're like, oh, this is not working. And there was some point again, if I have told the story, sorry, but it's a great story. Um, So at some point um, I, I said, when you, just before you say this line, why don't you laugh? Just laugh, you know, just, and he had this amazing laugh and it was just like this sort of great cackling laugh and, and it completely changed how he approached the character and it just energized it. It was like, oh my God, this is like a totally different guy. And then from then on, it was like, okay, he can, he totally has this. It's totally within him to be able to deliver this performance. And then quite often we would be in a session and be like, could you just laugh? Just try a laugh going into the line. And then, and then it would come back to him. That's, seems like, that's uh, fantastic. It seems like, you know, you, you cast these amazing actors and actresses for, for, for this film, but they know what they're, they're there for. You, when you cast George Takei, you, or Takei, you, you know, <laughs> you had me doing it, Dave. You know, right. When you cast George, right, and, and you, you got to know, like, this is the kind of thing. I mean, he's been doing voiceover since the Star Trek, the animated series, since the 70s, all the way to, yeah. you know, Mulan and all this other stuff he's been doing. Sure. So I would think they kind of know what the, the score is. But and then you, you, you look at a comedic genius like Gabriel Iglesias, who's in the film as well. And you got to know he's probably making you bust into stitches every time he does something over Zoom, because I'm sure it was kind of hard to kind of maybe rein him in because he's yeah, just so. No, exactly. So we, we, we were actually we did a session with him and Asif Manvi. Who they, they kind actor. of are uh, Mutt and Jeff kind yes. of two characters who live in the town and they're quite funny. Um, they're sort of the comedy relief in the town. Um, but yeah, the, the, getting them together for that first session was great because they had each other to play off of, which is very unusual to do in an animated movie. 
Um, we also got uh, Sam Jackson and Michael Sarah to do one session together early on. And that was great as well because they got a sense of the other actor, you know, and they were both sort of like, it was funny because they would probably never, ever be in a live action movie together. Like you just can't imagine what movie that would be. But in this, in the world of animation, you know, there's so many different possibilities uh, and getting them together was, was amazing too. But, you know, you want the actors again, to have fun. You want to push them. You want to, you want to make sure that, you know, they, they deliver the magic again, you know, if yeah. they, whatever it is um, one of the most spectacular, you know, improvisers and not just improviser, but just writer was Nathan Lane. Like Nathan Lane would come into a session and he'd have a, a sheet of paper with with kind of suggested lines like maybe I could do this, you know, maybe I could do that. And it, like and this, I mean, he was hilarious. And and again, one of the things Nathan was able to do, which was so spectacular, was he could deliver one line of dialogue in 25 different ways. And each of those ways was great. And that's the thing as an animator. It's almost like music, right? It's almost like you're, you're, you're kind of like a composer or a ranger, um, an arranger more than anything, but you know, you're listening for the actor to deliver a line that has a kind of a rhythm that, and that the rhythm is part of what's going to make that scene sort of come to life. Right. And it's all of those different varying rhythms that the actors bring to it, but they also have to work together. That's one of the things that is very challenging for, for, for any filmmaker, but, a, but an animation director to do is, especially when you're working with one actor at a time, you know, that's why you've got to make sure every actor is going to deliver a line that feels like they're in the same scene. And what's kind of amazing is when you cut them all together and you look at the scene and you go with it, I can't believe that they weren't in the same room together yeah, delivering yeah. these lines. But it's, it's about hearing that. And that goes back to the, how many takes do you do? Now I've developed, because I've done this a lot, I've, I've developed a kind of an internal uh, mechanism, which I, I mean, I, do, I don't have control over it, but I literally, like, when, a, when an actor delivers a line in the right rhythm, a bell goes off. And I'm like, okay, that's, we can use that. Like, it's that, intuitive. That's work. It, it, it's an intuitive thing for you. Yeah. You, you just know when they've hit it. And mm -hmm. you're like, okay, let's move on. Exactly. And when they, yeah. when they hit it, you might, you know, sometimes, as you said, they hit it on the first try. Sometimes it's on the second or third try. Even if they hit it on, on whatever try, you, you know, you, you're always going to, it's just part of the part of the course. You just sort of go, let's do one for coverage. Know, coverage. One for, it was actually, it was actually the, um, uh, the first AD on Stuart Little that would say one for Lloyd's. Uh -huh. One for Lloyd's, the, the bank. Lloyd, Lloyd, right. Lloyd's so one, like, yeah. one for Lloyd's, one for Lloyd's. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, uh, Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank is out in theaters right now. And it's also, I, I believe, available for streaming on HBO Max. Uh, it's that's it what be. I read. I read, read someplace. That. No, I don't think it's, it's not, certainly not available right now. No, it's, it's no, but it will actually, be. It will be. We have, we have an exclusive theatrical window okay. right now. Whoop, I'm, I'm just, on mute. Sorry. Okay. Um, I would. So we have a, an exclusive theatrical window. So of course I would encourage everyone who listens to this podcast to go out to a theater and see it the way it was meant to be seen. It looks incredibly beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's a very funny movie and I'm very, very proud of this film. Um, it, it's, it's been a labor of love obviously for so many years. And what's great is quite a lot of the people who've worked on this film uh, have the same kind of affection for it. And, and there's something about it that is 
you know, eminently repeatable. That's another kind of a high value thing that I think of in animation. If you can watch something more than once, you know, and f- get more out of it every time you watch it or just sure. enjoy it. I think that's, that's such a great thing. And I feel that way about this. Fantastic. Uh, what's next for you? Um, what is next? Well, I'm working on a couple of different fun projects. Um, one is based on a British children's book called How Winston Delivered Christmas, uh, which is a, a super charming book about a mouse that helps fulfill a little boy's uh, dreams, his Christmas wish on, on Christmas Eve. Um, and is, I'm that also, fully, is that fully animated or is that a live action animation combination? It's uh, fully animated. Okay. And it's going to be a musical as well. So I'm very oh, excited fantastic. about that. Um, we're working with uh, Helen Park, who wrote the music for Over the Moon, which is Glenn Keane's uh, directorial yeah, uh-huh. debut. Yep. And Glenn Slater, who has been uh, Alan Menken's lyricist for yes. many, many years. And Glenn yeah. and Helen are working together on the score. And uh, they've written a couple of fantastic songs we're very excited about. So we're just in the early stages of that. Awesome. Fantastic. Can't wait. Al John? I just wanted to say the art style is fun. I like Michael Sarah's character because he does look like underdog. Oh, he does. He does. He does have, you look at him and you're like, Oh, it's inspired like, by underdog, inspired huh? by underdog, you know, just like the whole Pikachu thing. Like it Somebody looks, actually it looks said like he looked like Hong Kong Fooey. Hong Kong Fooey. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know like that's a good thing or not. I don't know. But. No, I get it. It's cool. I did love Hong Kong, Kong, Kong Fooey actually. Right. So did I. Well, Rob, Hey, listen, I, I always appreciate it when you take some time to come on the Stole Rock <laughs> podcast and uh, we look forward to having you back again at some point in the future. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Skull Rock Podcast. To infinity and beyond. Exploring the outer reaches of the Disney galaxy. Whoa. Oh, wow. You flew magnificently. He's just like the nicest guy. Oh, he was incredible. <laughs> and, and you know something? I got to tell you, the... Um, uh, I'm looking forward to going out and seeing Paws of Fury. Um, I love it when filmmakers talk about their work and uh, the fact that Rob is so darn proud of this movie. And and I'm amazed that it took 10 years to get it done. Absolutely I, amazed. But, you know, yeah. he, he's the kind of guy that sticks to it and sees things through to the end. Well, kudos to him and his animation company and all the people that kind of sought this through till the very end, including Mel Brooks. You know, I think once again, it's the barometer is my daughter. You know, she's the she loves the she loves animated movies. And when she saw it, like I said, this is great. I want to see it again, Daddy. Like, that's wonderful. You know, because and and I do, too. I mean, it's it's great. So I definitely see a future in these characters if they decide to move forward with it or not. But uh, definitely go out there and support Rob's uh, movie because it's great. A lot of great people and talented people are involved in this, and uh, they did a great job. And Samuel L. Jackson is hilarious. Uh, Absolutely. You know, something I watched, like, several minutes of, like, all the different trailers for this movie Uh uh, strung together and all the different clips they used for, you know, reviewers and things like that. Uh, And uh, Samuel L. Jackson is just great in everything he really is he's just a terrific terrific actor and uh and it was amazing uh listening to rob uh tell the stories about how they had to put together recording equipment packages to send out to these uh actors for them to set up in their homes to do the recording because of the pandemic i mean i mean it's just really amazing when you pull the curtain back and hear about how these films have gotten made over the last couple of years 
I don't see how that's possible with some of these actors. I really don't because I can totally imagine seeing, you know, George Takei up there going, oh my, that's a lot of equipment I have to unbox. You know, <laughs> just see that, you know, but hey, you know, him and Michael Sarah, they really work well together. So uh, go out there and support the film. I think it's a great, great romp. So uh, bring yeah, the family. and we look forward to having Rob back in again uh, on the Skull Rock podcast because, you know, he he's just a terrific guest. He's very articulate and he's always got great stories to tell oh he's just an amazing storyteller well you know it, it you know that's what happens you know you spend you spend most of your life in in the storytelling mode you get to be a good storyteller and he's a great director so uh come on back won't you won't you that'd be great uh if you love disney and pop culture subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform thanks for joining us every single week and we do ap- uh, appreciate you doing that spread the word about the show uh, it's a summertime, and you know the algorithm needs you. That's what I'm saying. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram <laughs> need you too. So feel free to give us a like and follow on those platforms as well. We would love to read your comments and show ideas via, via email. We love that. Dave or Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. Send us those emails. We would love it. And, um, you know, support all of our links too. You know, we've got some awesome, awesome show sponsors like The Shore Company with these microphones. Uh, so please, please support us in that respect as well. Dave, you've got the final word. Well, as always, Al John, uh, I want to mention to our guests, uh, please go out and see Pause of Fury if you have a chance to, uh, to catch it. Uh, this is uh, a very, very hot week uh, across the United States. Stay cool. Uh, and the best way to stay cool is to stay indoors and listen to the Skull Rock Podcast. We'll see you here next week, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com <laughs>